You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So now that we're in the month of September, it means that it stays darker longer in the mornings. It's not now it's, it's not until around 6 a.m. that the sky just starts starts to turn blue and it's the time of day that I imagine this scene in Exodus 1. Still mostly dark outside, just a little bit of blue in the sky. And there's a a woman wincing with pain because she's in labor. She's in her bedroom, within her house, doubled over because the contractions are so intense. And her midwife is holding her hand, coaching her in how to breathe. And over in the corner of this room, there's another midwife. And she's folding some linens, getting ready to receive This baby, and while the woman in labor is distracted by her pain, the one midwife locks eyes with the other midwife and she shakes her head. No, she's not going to do it. And in that moment, they both agree. They are on the exact same page. These two midwives know what Pharaoh has said. Every Hebrew son is to be killed, but they will not go through with it because they know that there is an authority higher than Pharaoh. And they understand the dynamics going on here. The supreme ruler of the world's strongest nation has given them a direct command, but they choose to disobey that command because they believe that God is stronger than Pharaoh. Basically, these midwives already know in chapter 1, what the book of Exodus is meant to show us. And by this point, the sun has come up, and we as the readers of this story are neck deep in conflict. Every every good story has conflict, and the best of stories have layers of conflict. And because God writes the best of stories, we should not be surprised at all that the book of Exodus starts the way it does. The setting of this book is layered with conflict, and the plot just keeps getting thicker and thicker. And since today is our first sermon in the book of Exodus, I simply want us to walk through each layer of conflict that we find here in chapter 1. And I, I want us to sort of let this book introduce itself to us. All right, that, that's the plan for the sermon. We're going to look at seven layers of conflict in Exodus chapter 1. And these are layers, not points, okay? Points take more time, but layers are a little bit, little bit easier, okay? So we're looking at seven layers in Exodus chapter 1, and there are some lessons for us along the way. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, this morning, we ask that you would open wide our hearts 
to receive your word in this moment. More than anything, we want to hear from you. So speak to us and work in us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, seven layers like the cake. Layer number one. The sons of Israel were fruitful and multiplied in Egypt. Okay, we see this in verse 7. Look at verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And the language here probably sounds familiar to us because this is the language from the book of Genesis. Remember that to be fruitful and multiply was the original mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve way back in Genesis chapter 1. And then later in Genesis, that becomes part of the promise that God gives to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham that his offspring, his descendants, will outnumber the stars of the heavens. They're going to multiply. The descendants of Abraham are going to multiply so much that they will outnumber the stars. And we'll hear in Exodus chapter 1, that's beginning to happen. We're supposed to see right away that the book of Exodus is linked to the book of Genesis. What God has promised is coming to pass even in Egypt. The Egypt part is the only wrinkle in these first few verses here. And that's because Egypt was not the land that God had promised Abraham. And remember, the, the, the only reason that the sons of Israel were in Egypt is his own crazy story. You guys remember the story in Genesis there was a famine in the whole land, in the whole region. There was a famine. And the only place that had food was Egypt. And the only reason that Egypt had food was because a son of Israel named Joseph was second in command over Egypt. And he gave wise counsel to Pharaoh. And the only reason Joseph ever ended up in Egypt was because his brothers betrayed him and sold him into slavery. And the only reason his brothers did that is because Joseph was a dreamer and his brothers hated him. All of that, that incredible story about Joseph that begins way back in Genesis 37, that whole story is meant to lead us into Exodus. That whole story about Joseph in Genesis is meant to set up the book of Exodus. Look back for a minute in Genesis 50. Okay, in verse 22, you can just glance over a page if you have your Bible open there. Genesis 50, verse 22. Verse 22 says, so Joseph remained in Egypt. This is the end of Genesis. Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. That means everybody. Okay, everybody is in Egypt. All the sons of Jacob are in Egypt, just like we read in Exodus 1, verses 1 to 5. But look what Joseph says in verse 24, Genesis 50, verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So this verse, Genesis 50, 24, is meant to remind us before we get to Exodus, 
that Egypt is not the promised land, and therefore Egypt is not the end. God is going to bring Israel up out of Egypt. And we're supposed to have this fresh in our minds as we read Exodus chapter 1. God is making good on his promises to Abraham. God is making good on his promises in that the sons of Israel are increasing. They're multiplying. But we're still not there yet because for now, we're still in Egypt. And I think there's a little lesson for us here. Some of you this morning are still in Egypt. What I mean is that some of you are in a place right now that you will not always be. You might be going through something now. You might be going through something that seems not to fit with the promises of God. And I want you to know it will not last. It is not the end. Some of you might feel this morning, coming from all the different places we're coming from. Some of you might feel this morning that you're in Egypt, but God is able to bring you out. You might be in Egypt now, but you're not staying in Egypt, okay? We're not staying in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 1, the sons of Israel are not where God promised. They are increasing like God said. God is at work. They're increasing. They're multiplying. But for now, they're increasing and multiplying in Egypt. And to make matters worse, this is not your mother's Egypt. Okay? This is layer, layer two here. Layer two, the new Pharaoh considered the nation of Israel a threat. This is verse eight. Look at verse eight. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. All right, so new king, new day. This new Pharaoh did not know Joseph, which means he didn't realize how the wisdom of Joseph basically kept everyone from starving and it actually led to the blessing of Pharaoh's house that this Pharaoh actually benefits from. He doesn't know that. That is old news by the time with this new Pharaoh. And therefore, because it's old news, this Pharaoh thinks differently about the sons of Israel. They are not a family blessed by God through which others are blessed. Instead, Pharaoh sees them as a nation that poses a threat. And I think there's something going on interesting here in the text. Okay, there's a little clue about what's going on when we compare verse 9 to verse 7. Okay, in verse 7, the phrase that refers to Israel uses the word sons. Okay, and if you have the ESV, it still translates it as people of Israel in verse 7. But in the original, the word is literally sons. It's the sons of Israel. And this is important because in verse 9, there's a different word. 
Pharaoh in verse 9 doesn't call the sons of Israel the sons of Israel. Instead, he calls them literally the people of Israel. So verse 7, it's the sons, and verse 9, it's the people. So as the numbers have increased, the sons of Israel have gone from being sons with families to now being a bona fide people group. They are not sons anymore. Now they are Israelites. They are Hebrews, which means now they are a nation, which means now Pharaoh gets it. We have a nation within a nation. And look what he says in verse 10. He says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from our land. And there's all kinds of irony going on here. Because the worst case scenario for Pharaoh in in Exodus chapter 1 is if the people of Israel escape the land. That's his worst case scenario. And Pharaoh thinks that's possible because their numbers are increasing. And well, we know that their numbers are increasing because of the blessing of God. God is blessing them like he said he would. Their numbers are increasing, which means in summary, at the end of the day, Pharaoh thinks God's blessing on Israel is a threat to himself. And so rather than align himself with God's blessing, he opposes it. Pharaoh puts himself on the other side, and this is not good. Remember what God told Abraham in Genesis 12.3. This is an important verse. In Genesis 12.3, God tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And Pharaoh here in Exodus 1, he decides to show dishonor. Pharaoh decides to suppress the increasing numbers of Israel by enslaving the people. Pharaoh opposes Israel. And this is a bad move, Pharaoh. Okay? Some of the kids are taking some notes this morning. We have these new notebooks. If you're taking notes, you can write this down, okay? In verse 10, write down, bad move, Pharaoh. If you're a note writer, and Pharaoh's a tricky word, okay, it's P-H-A-R-A-O-H, all right? That's how you spell that little trick. So write it down. Verse 10, bad move, Pharaoh, not going to work. Look at layer three. The people of Israel increased despite the oppression. This is verse 12, the first part of verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the the more they spread abroad. So the plan doesn't work already. The blessing of God overrides the opposition. Pharaoh thought that his oppression would make the numbers shrink. Pharaoh thought that he could make Israel stop growing. But look what verse 12 says about Israel. Can't nobody take my pride. Can't nobody hold me down. Oh, no. I got to keep on moving. It's verse 12. The more Pharaoh oppressed Israel, the more they multiplied. 
the more oppression, the more increasing. The more suppression, the more multiplying. And so the plot gets thicker, just getting thicker. Layer four, all of Egypt dreaded all of Israel. Layer four, all of Egypt dreaded all of Israel. This is the last part of verse 12. And the Egyptians, last part of verse 12, the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So now things have escalated, right? This is no longer about a paranoid Pharaoh. But the end of verse 12 tells us that now there's this collective worry. All the Egyptians are in dread of the Israelites. And the word dread means something between horror and panic. This has now become a national emergency what started as the suspicions and fears of a leader have now become the suspicions and fears of an entire people. And of course, it works that way, right? Fear is always the easiest thing to spread. And history shows us that rulers, leaders, can generate a lot of power by the use of fear. See, it's fear and insecurity that then turn into blaming and scapegoating. And then blaming and scapegoating eventually turn into genocide. I think every genocide in the history of the world follows the pattern we see here in Exodus 1. What do you think is going to happen next here in the story? What do you think is going to happen next in Exodus 1? The whole nation of Egypt now dreads the people of Israel. And so the whole nation of Egypt gets in on the oppression. And so the impression intensifies. And then in verse 16, we see it. This is layer number, layer number five. Pharaoh orders the midwives to kill the Hebrew sons. Look at verse 15 first. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shifra and the other Pua. Verse 16, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So the oppression by ruthless forced labor apparently was not enough. And so now Pharaoh turns to Death. He intends to subdue the Israelites or the Hebrews by killing their sons. The opposition has now worsened into the darkest possibility. This is genocide. This is the mass killing of an entire ethnic group. It's genocide, but genocide through the killing of sons. Now, some commentators speculate why, why Pharaoh targets the sons. And one answer is that the sons are the ones who will grow up and become soldiers. And since Pharaoh is afraid of war, he wants to eradicate an army before it can form. Okay, And that might be the case. That could be something that's going on here. But either way, there's something more happening here when we see this in light of the Bible storyline. Notice that Pharaoh calls them sons, not boys. Now, he could have said, kill the boys or kill the males. But instead, 
he says, sons, verse 16, if it is a son, you shall kill him. Now, we, as the readers of this story, we should ask, do sons have anything important to do with the story of Israel? Do sons matter? Of course they do. You could say that the entire hope of Israel is bound up in a son. And it all starts with the promised son of Genesis 3.15. There's a son we read about in Genesis 3.15, a son who is to come and crush the head of the serpent. So already in Genesis 3, we're looking for this son and we think, you know what? It could be Abel. Abel might be this son, but what happens to Abel? Cain killed Abel. And so then we think in Genesis 5, well, maybe it's Noah. Finally with Noah. Finally, we have a son who will bring us relief, Genesis 5, 29. But then Noah sins and Noah falls, and we know that Noah is not the one. And then there's Abraham, and a lot is promised Abraham concerning his son. But he and Sarah can't have kids. He and Sarah can't have children. And that lasts for years. And we begin to conclude what Abraham concludes, that none of God's promises to him are going to come true unless he has a son. None of the promises can happen apart from this son. And then by a miracle, by an absolute miracle, when Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead, God gave them a son. And that son, his name is Isaac. And then Isaac, all those promises to Abraham are given to Isaac. And then Isaac has his own sons, Jacob and Esau. And how did that go? Strife. There was strife between the sons, and eventually Jacob emerges, and Jacob is blessed, and then Jacob has his own sons. And how did it go with those sons? More strife. They got together and betrayed Joseph. The, the strife among those sons is the whole reason that we've, we, we're, we find ourselves here in Egypt. The strife between the sons. And now that we're here in Egypt, what do we find? We find that now Pharaoh wants to kill all the Hebrew sons. It's been said before that the whole Old Testament in a nutshell could just be called the drama of the son. And I think it works. Israel's hope, the hope of the world is bound up in a son. We know that by Exodus chapter one. The hope of the world, the hope of Israel is all bound up in a son. And so the enemies of God want nothing more than to destroy this son. In fact, in the book of Revelation, this is the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 12, we read about this vision that John had, okay? So John, he says there was a great sign that appeared in heaven, and the sign was of a woman in labor, and she was about to give birth to a male child. And then another sign appeared, and this sign was of a great red dragon. And the, and the red dragon stood in front of the woman at her feet, waiting for the son to be born so that the dragon could devour it. But God rescued the son. He rescued the son from the dragon. That's Revelation chapter 12. And look, that's, that's you know, apocalyptic for sure, but it's also an illustration of what we read about throughout the whole Testament. 
It's an illustration in Revelation 12 of basically what we see all throughout human history. There's a bigger picture happening here in Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh is not simply being strategic in targeting the sons. Pharaoh is being used as a pawn by Satan. What we see here in Exodus 1 is Satan's darker scheme to defeat God's salvation by waging war against the son. War is waged against the sun. Satan is the one at work in Pharaoh. And this is a bad move, Pharaoh. You can write that down too. Verse 15. Verse 15, bad move, Pharaoh. P-H-A-R-A-O-H. Bad move, Pharaoh. Not going to work. Layer six. The scheme of Satan fails because two midwives fear God. Shifra and Pua are their names. And these are not great names. Look, we don't recycle these names in the 21st century. Nobody is naming their kids Shifra and Pua. And whatever you do, don't shorten these names, okay? Uh. <laughs> no nicknames for Shifra and Pua. But they're real names. That's the point. These are, real, these, these are real women. These are real names, real midwives who serve the Hebrews. And Pharaoh instructed them that as soon as the Hebrew children were born, these two midwives, Shifra and Pua, that they were to see them on the birth stool, which is kind of an odd phrase, and I think it's kind of like a euphemism. Basically, it means as soon as the children are born, the midwives were to check the sex of the child. They were supposed to check and see, is it a son? And if it's a son, verse 16, they shall kill him. Pharaoh knew that the most efficient way to eradicate a whole people was to get them at birth. And the only reason Pharaoh had to wait into actual birth was because they didn't have ultrasounds in Egypt at this time. But if they had ultrasounds, Pharaoh's an abortionist, see. This is already genocide by infanticide. With a little more technology, this, this is genocide by abortion. And it would have been successful here if not for Shifra and Pua. Remember, the two midwives are in the room just before the sun comes up. There's still a little bit of blue in the sky. And the Hebrew woman is in labor. And Shifra looks at Pua in the corner of the room, and they're not going to do it. They're just not going to do it. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do. Wow. Wow. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. And it was obvious to Pharaoh that they 
did not kill the sons because he comes to them a second time and he speaks to him and he asks them, hey, what's going on? Why have you let the male children live? And they say, well, it's because these Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptian women. They're, they're quick in labor. They had these babies before we can even get to them. And apparently Pharaoh buys the answer because we don't read any more dialogue between Pharaoh and the midwives. I think that's because that's not the main point here. There's something more important happening. Something more important we're supposed to see. It's in verse 20. Look at verse 20, the second half. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. The main point here is that Pharaoh's plan, the scheme of Satan, has failed. And it has failed because of two women who in the social ladder of ancient Egypt were nobodies. There is a wonderful twist that's happening here. It's that the highest authority of the world's superpower has a wicked plan that gets subverted by two peasant women who trust God. And what happens here, we, we start to see a little theme develop. Because right after these women, it's a Levite woman who disobeys Pharaoh's command and she keeps her son alive by putting him in a basket. <clears throat> and then after that woman, it's a little girl. It's the baby boy's sister. And she keeps the son alive by following the basket down the river. And then after that little girl, it's Pharaoh's own daughter who keeps the son alive by drawing him out of the water and adopting him. So the, the book of Exodus opens and we see right away in the book of Exodus, there are women of all ages who were overthrowing the powers of evil, not by strength, but by faith. And, and ultimately, this is, this is ultimately what happens here. The subversion of Pharaoh's plan reaches all the way into Pharaoh's own house. His own daughter is saving the son. The irony in this story is off the charts. It, it is hard to overstate the significance of this narrative and what's happening. It's hard to overstate how significant these midwives are. It all starts with the midwives. It reaches into Pharaoh's house, but it starts with the midwives. And the whole rest of the book of Exodus is basically meant to show us and to show Pharaoh what these midwives already know. The midwives know who God is. They know that God is sovereign over Pharaoh. They know that God is faithful to his promises. That is the message of Exodus. God is stronger. God keeps his promises. And the midwives already know that. They already know it in chapter 1. And we should be like the midwives. In fact, I wonder if, 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 like, if we, you know, what, what would they say to us if we had a chance to talk to them today? So imagine here, like, if they were here, if, 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 if Shifra and Pua were here, and we were to say, Miss Shifra, Miss Pua, uh, you're midwives. You're, you're, you're midwives who stood against the powers of evil. What lesson can you give us? Okay, imagine, imagine they're on a college campus. Do, 
are there any, any college students in here? Raise your hand so we can see. Okay, okay we've got some college students here. Okay, great. So imagine for a minute that you have Shifra and Pua on your college campus and they're surrounded by a bunch of students and one of the students speaks up and asks him a question and he says, um, look, we, we, we're... We're starting our lives here. We're in school. We want to have an impact like you, like you guys have had. Help us here. We want to have an impact like you, Miss Shifra, Miss Pua. What is one piece of advice that you would give us? I think if you would ask that question on your campus, I think this is what Shifra would say. I think she would say, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world but you do have to know one great thing and be willing to live for it and to die for it. One great thing. I think that's what she say. You don't have to know a lot of things. You got to know one great thing. Be willing to live for it. Be willing to die for it. The midwives knew God is sovereign and he keeps his promises. God is stronger and God is faithful. The midwives knew that. And so church, students, know that. Know that. Layer seven. This is the final layer, okay? Layer seven, Pharaoh doubles down in his war against the sun. This is verse 22. Then Pharaoh commands all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So the midwives do what they can, but, but Pharaoh, he isn't done here. Pharaoh now goes beyond the midwives, and he issues this edict for the whole nation of Egypt. It's now the responsibility of all the Egyptians that if they see Hebrew sons, they're supposed to throw the Hebrew sons into the Nile River. Okay, this is Pharaoh's new plan, and this is for a third time a bad move. Verse 22 Bad move, Pharaoh. Not going to work. There's a comparison we're supposed to see here between the midwives and Pharaoh. God dealt well with the midwives in verse 20. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, it, it, verse 21 says that God gave them family. So this is basically Genesis 12, 3 all over again. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. The midwives gave Israel families, and so God gives them families. Pharaoh throws Israel's sons into the Nile, and so God will kill Pharaoh's sons and turn the Nile into blood. Watch and see. And that's because God is sovereign and he keeps his promises to Abraham. God will do what he says, even as the war wages on. Because the war against the sun isn't over, see. The war against the sun isn't over. Many years after Pharaoh, there was another nervous king who feared losing his throne. He was another pawn of Satan, and his name was Herod. And in his fear and insecurity, do you remember what he did? 
Out of his fear and insecurity, Herod ordered that all the infant sons in Bethlehem and the whole region be killed. But it was a bad move, Herod. Bad move, Herod, not going to work because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born. And he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He lived a perfect life of obedience and faithfulness. He was the last Adam, the offspring of Abraham. He was the greater Moses. Jesus was the Messiah who had finally come to save us. But the war continued. And Jesus was hated and slandered and eventually Jesus was arrested. And after Jesus is arrested, we find yet another ruler who is fearful and insecure. His name was Pilate. And he caved to the crowd when they demanded that Jesus be crucified. And that's what they did. They crucified the son. Satan and the forces of evil had finally caught him. Jesus, the son, was beaten beyond recognition. He was nailed to a cross and hoisted up in mockery. Jesus suffered thirsty, gasping for breath, bearing the weight of sin, and then he died. Jesus, the son, died and was buried. And Satan thought the war was over. Satan thought he had finally defeated the son. Bad move, Satan. Not going to work. Because on the third day, in the early morning when the sky, the sky just starts to turn blue, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was raised from the dead. What seemed to be the greatest defeat became the greatest victory. And Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, is Jesus, the Son of God, vindicated by his Father. The beloved Son of God is the Son who conquers. The beloved Son of God is the Son who saves. And though the fighting might continue... The war has been won. And the victory of Jesus is our victory. When you put your faith in Jesus, the victory of Jesus becomes our victory. When we trust in him, we receive his victory. And so this morning, receive it. Receive the victory of Jesus. That's what we remember each week as we come to this table. This table is where we remember the death of Jesus for us. And at this table, we give him thanks. 
We, we eat the bread that represents his body that was broken for us. We, we drink the cup that represents his blood that was shed for us. And when we eat and when we drink, we remember that by faith we're united to Jesus. And we remember that his victory is indeed our victory. We share in the victory of Jesus. And this morning, if that's true of you, if you share in the victory of Jesus, we invite you to come and eat and drink with us. Eat and drink with us. Share in his victory and give him thanks.